rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number eight of Superman in the Bronze Age. I am your host, Charlie Neumeyer, and today we're going to be looking at the Superman issues that came out uh, with a cover date of April 1971. Uh, first of all, I do want to mention that if anyone would like to be a, co a guest co-host on the show for an episode or two uh, sometime in the near future, please email me. Uh, so far, I have had one response. I'm not going to tell you who it is because that would be telling, but um, it looks like I will have someone on the show pretty soon, so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, I did get an email um, in response to the last episode, and uh, this one was actually written, the, uh, the name on it is Professor Blog, and he writes, Charlie, I wanted to let you know that your instincts about how the academic world operates were correct, as expressed by your review of Action 398, which was last episode. Uh, not being named university president would not be enough for a professor to hold such a grudge against it, that university to turn to evil plans of revenge. Now, being denied tenure by that university might do it, uh, which I can understand that right there. Uh, and he says, uh, really enjoying the show. Keep up the good work. Professor Allen, Central Ohio. So I guess the Flash what listens to my show. That's pretty cool. Uh, but I just... Uh, Thank you for writing in, Professor. And um, it's nice to know that my instincts were correct for once. Um, so I guess nothing much left to do except to um, play a quick promo here, and then I'll go into the reviews. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. First up is going to be Superman number 236. Uh, cover date, as I said, is April 1971. Uh, it actually came out on February 16th, 1971 for a whopping 15 cents with a very cool looking Neil Adams cover that involves Superman standing amidst flames with what looks to be two devils. Uh, actually, it looks like two guys in the pan costume from last issue, but they're color colored red this time with pitchforks. And um, 
Behind them is Lois in flames. So that looks pretty cool, if you ask me. But anyway, uh, so the story is called Planet of the Angels. Uh, the story is written by Denny O'Neill. The art is by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. The editor was Julie Schwartz. And, of course, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And we start out, uh, we see what appears to be the end of an untold story. Uh, as Superman and Batman crash in on a couple of goons that look like they're trying to rob a safe. Uh, they, of course, attack as Superman acts as a barrier to prevent Batman from getting hit by some bullets. They, the two heroes knock out the bad guys, shake hands after being after mentioning that they've been after them for a solid week, but finally took care of them. And then they step outside, and Superman offers to take Batman out for a cup of coffee. But Batman states that he's been awake for four days, and he's tired, so he just wants to go to bed. So Superman walks off, kind of, and then flies off. Uh, trying to figure out what he's going to do because unlike humans he doesn't really need sleep and he's trying to think of things he can do as he flies off towards his fortress he doesn't need to look for uh, antidote to green kryptonite anymore since that's gone he's learned 40 new other world languages since the, since last summer so doesn't really feel like doing that uh, so he figures maybe he'll do a little lab work to perk himself up and he's got this brainwave project that he's been wanting to work on and uh, that will provide some data in case he ever decides to get married and have children. Although I don't know how that's going to affect that much, but uh, anyway. Uh, so he puts on this weird-looking helmet and starts to fall asleep, it looks like. And suddenly we see him go through a photo image, it looks like, that's been put in the page. Uh, to, to send to indicate to syndicate to indicate that he's going through some kind of warp and he wakes up standing on a planet uh, covered in flames also oh I'm sorry a raging inferno and he's suddenly attacked by these devils who again like I mentioned from the cover uh, basically look like they're wearing the same that pan costume from last issue except that they're all painted red and they throw their pitchforks at him, they bounce off, Superman kind of throws them all back, and they run off into the flame, and he decides not, uh, Superman decides not to chase after them, because anything could be lurking beside, behind those flames, and it's not like he has any way to actually see through them, you know, it's Superman. So suddenly he hears that he's done a good job, and he turns around to see three angels, Gabriel, Raphael, and Michael. And they show him what looks to be heaven. Uh, He's in a heavenly area while the other guys are hiding behind fire, so you can see the uh, imagery there. Superman believes he's died, and Gabriel makes it sound like, yes, he has. But in order to prove himself worthy, he's got to uh, open the gates, uh, basically the gates of hell, uh, to make sure that we show them to doom uh, the little devil guys. So Superman walks off and walks up to the gate and decides he wants to open it, but sees Jimmy, Lois, and Batman dancing along in the flames, uh, actually as part of the flames, not dancing in the flames, uh, and they're all smiling at him like they're mocking him. So he decides he needs to think this through because something's messed up, and instead of just opening the gates, he decides to burrow underneath and comes up behind the devils, who are hanging out behind the door and they start shooting him with their pitchforks because they actually shoot bolts of lasers or something and in quick two pages Superman pretty much knocks them all out and he tries to figure out what's going on 
and finally is able to start reasoning with one of the devil guys who points out that this whole place is an illusion uh, it's not things are not what they seem uh, Superman has been telepathically called and is being used as an instrument for the angels which he doesn't quite understand so he uh, so the he had the devil gentleman has Superman concentrate and narrow his mind and pretty soon Superman actually sees this devil turn into an alien police officer from the planet Beta U which apparently is not a college or a fraternity in the DCU at this time anyway um, and we learned that the angels are actually criminals and murderers that these law officers have chased over half the galaxy uh, they were lured, lured, not lured, lured to this, uh, to this planet, and the angels sprang a trap which damaged the engines of the ship. So they had to erect a wall of nuclear flame around the vessel because they are the angels are not as resistant to the heat as these space officers are. So Superman decides that he doesn't like being controlled, and he goes out uh, from hell, uh, opens the gates. Uh, which upsets the police officers because their weapons are uh, because the angels weapons are superior to theirs but Superman says they might be but they're not superior to Superman so Superman heads up to talk to Gabriel and Gabriel mentions real quick that they're uh, if he's not careful his friends will perish and the three angels possess flaming swords and or have them pointed directly at Jimmy Olsen Lois Lane and Batman uh, which it would have been good enough to fool Superman in the stupor he was in earlier, but he points out that uh, just because you mentioned them doesn't mean they're actually there. So Michael and uh, Raphael start attacking Superman with their swords, but unfortunately, they, well, unfortunately for them, uh, the force blasts don't have any problem or aren't any problem for Superman to handle. So he quickly knocks out the two angels. Uh, and he starts wondering where Gabriel went when the police, when the space officers arrive to tell him that he's got a bomb and he's headed towards Earth. Uh, Superman realizes that he doesn't have time to fix their ship and help them, so he flies off towards Earth to try to save the day. Flies straight through that same warp we saw earlier and sees a, uh, Gabriel as he's flying towards Earth. And like a ace quarterback, he he throws it directly towards what looks like a uh, hurricane uh, gathering over one of the oceans. Superman is able to catch up to the, uh, to the little bomb and it explodes in a soundless explosion because obviously we're in space and Gabriel flies off and Superman catches up to him and suddenly knocks him out. Taking him back through the warp um, we see the angels all tied up by the police officers and Superman just asks to know that if he was able to see the true form of the police officers, why didn't the angels change? And the uh, officer might, uh, tells Superman that basically that's what they actually look like, and that evil comes in many disguises, even though some of them are beautiful. And so Superman says that's worth remembering, and goodbye. And in the next instant, we see that Dawn has touched the Arctic waste at Superman's fortress, and he wakes up with the helmet on. So the question is, was the whole story a dream, or was it just a weird ending? Because that ending kind of confuses me. If yeah, um, so we find out that the him falling asleep 
actually somehow sent him through a warp, which puts him on this planet. Superman was able to fly through the warp twice, and he's leaving at the end flying off, so you would think he would just fly through the warp again and land on Earth at the fortress and go back in or something. But apparently he's taking off the helmet like it's been a dream, so I'm not completely sure about that. I don't know if it's written that way or the art just turned out that way, but... Uh, as far as the story, I do have a few notes. Um, first of all, the first page, we um, I'm, I'm not a fan of Kurt Swan's version of Batman, at least not since they uh, did the new look version of him. He did a pretty good job of mimicking the art that they used uh, with the Bob Kane version that they were going with so far, but once uh, Julie Schwartz came on to the Batman books and instituted that new look that Carmine Infantino established, uh, I've not, not been a fan of Kurt Swan's version of Batman. However, in this issue, he actually looks pretty good. Uh, Swan does a good job of working with the shadows and keeping it kind of dark, and Denny O'Neill, of course, writes, has written some of the better Batman stories, so the character works. Um, so. Batman looks pretty good in this issue. I do think it's kind of funny that after four panels, uh, Superman and Batman just shake hands and leave. Uh, we see no, no evidence of police being called or anything, so I guess these guys are just knocked out. And uh, so, uh, and they were going to go out for a cup of coffee. That would be a strange trip at a place, uh, especially if you worked at that coffee house, to suddenly see two guys dressed up as Superman and Batman show up. That would be an interesting evening. Um, on page two, Superman's trying to decide what uh, what he could possibly do because you know he's got nothing planned. Um, you know, it, it strikes me as funny, but um, I'm reminded last uh, last episode when we talked about uh, action, where he talked about gave this whole history about Kandor and why he doesn't have time to work on how to save him. Uh, well, gee, he's got plenty of time here. Perhaps he could. Oh, I don't know. You know work on figuring out how to enlarge Kandor. Guess not, but I would think that'd be a good idea to do, but then again, we wouldn't have this story. Uh, page three, again, I'm not sure I understand how comparing brain electricity with, from Kryptonian to normal Earth people uh, would affect the whole childbearing thing, um, because even though they're human, they probably wouldn't be able to have kids anyway just because they're different species, uh, unfortunately. Although that would kind of ruin most of the imaginary stories you see in in the DC comics. But still, it, it doesn't make much sense to me. I do like the panel, though, with the um, space warp. They've got uh, Superman kind of colored in a negative fashion. Uh, or you know, black and white switch places, and the background image definitely seems to be some kind of weird photo, photo, Photoshop, photo imagery that was black and white and they kind of colored in. You see it a lot. Uh, Jack Kirby uses a lot of that kind of stuff in um, some of his Jimmy Olsen work, and I'm sure some of the other books, but I've only really read the Jimmy Olsen stuff. Um, but it looks really cool there. Um, and on page five, there's this image where Superman's uh, realizing that he may have died, and he looks really messed up. Like, I don't know if it's Anderson's inking or if Swan actually drew him that way, but his eyes are really dazed, and he looks like he's like half asleep, and he's got his teeth in such a way where it looks like his front maybe ate 
six teeth are like buck teeth and just kind of hanging over the his bottom. Uh, no, it's not a very good image of Superman. I'll try to include that in the show notes so you all can see what I'm talking about. But it doesn't look good. And then of course they didn't actually color in his eyes. So kind of looks like something was missing. Um, I do like the way that they start giving you clues right away though about the uh, fact that the angels aren't good guys. Uh, for one, uh, they are giving Superman a task to prove himself worthy. Now, Superman's apparently a little dazed by what's going on and everything's moving pretty quickly, so I can see him just kind of bumbling through this. But, well, one, uh, after all the stuff he's doing, Superman should not have to prove that he's worthy to go to heaven. And, um, number two, now this comes more on the belief I have of heaven, but everything is known about what you have done before you go to heaven. So there is no, you have to perform this task if you want to come into heaven. It's just, come on in, or you cannot come in. You know, it's one or the other. Uh, so not only should Superman not have to perform, uh, perform or prove himself because of, of all the stuff he's done, but he shouldn't have to anyway just because of the way it is. Um, also, well, I'm sorry, the way I, it's believed to be anyway. I, it's hard to explain. It's... I don't want to get into a religion debate. Anyway, um, also the angels have soot on their um, robes, which you don't usually see angels have, possess. And this, uh, this angel Gabriel has, unfortunately, had, it's an artwork problem, has several different looks to him. Uh, in the first image, he literally looks like he could be a somewhat skinny Santa Claus. Uh, when we see him on panel three, his beard becomes a lot shorter. And also, we see that these angels, all their their hair is literally blowing all over the place, but Superman's is staying still, which could be because it's Kryptonian hair. But to me, it just makes it look like it's kind of fake plastered hair. But anyway, and then um, on the third panel of page six... Um, his hair looks totally different again. Uh, it actually looks like it's just a little bit longer than, like, maybe Superman's hair even. And um, the beard doesn't look as long. So, uh, so, I don't know, apparently Swan was having a little problem with the hair. Um, Superman also realizes that there shouldn't be any dirt in heaven or hell. So that also helps him out of his stupor. Uh, but other than that, uh, the fight isn't bad it's not the most dynamic thing I've ever seen uh, in one panel Superman literally swats away one of the devils while breaking the other one's pitchfork and then throws I guess that devil into a wall while the other one while another one tries to punch him of course that doesn't work so apparently there's only three of these guys even though you clearly see four five six seven eight maybe so that was kinda weird that, that worked out so quickly on page 10, I understand what Swan's trying to go for with uh, the changing, uh, the, the police officer guy uh, switching from the devil to the police officer. But it literally looks like Superman's concentrating and watching as this guy like quickly changes across the screen. Like He starts off on his left, and then he actually moves over to his right, so maybe... You know, that was part of it. Uh, I think it's just, I'm thinking it's just a artistic choice to show you since obviously, you know, nothing's moving on this thing. 
Um, page 14, the problem I have with this part is the bomb that Gabriel is planning to use to blow up the Earth. Uh, now, if you recall last episode, uh, Superman was uh, had a blockbuster bomb he had to, he had to stop. And that bomb looked like a pretty big bomb, but it blew up on his chest and hardly did any damage. This bomb is is pretty small, but was supposed to blow up the Earth. Now, I also understand uh, sometimes big things come in small packages and that kind of thing, but it just is kind of, I don't know. It just, you would think that they would have tried something a little more special or a little more super looking considering what happened last issue but then this might also be a, just a dream so who knows and then um let's see what was the other part uh page 15 again the ending is pretty confusing um i do like the fact that in this story uh it's not really like any superman story they've read before you've read or seen before so it's kind of breaking new ground which is really cool considering this is over 30 years after superman originally appeared um and Superman actually learned a lesson. I mean, it was a little forced, but wasn't bad. Um, but seriously, this is a, this was an inter entertaining story. This was actually the first uh, comic I owned from this part of Superman, not the Bronze Age, but from this early in the Bronze Age. From the, I didn't even know it was part of the Sandman saga because, well, as you can see, the su Sandman, su the Sand Superman character, doesn't even appear in this issue. And Superman appears to be at full power, so we have—I mean—we're not seeing anything to indicate other than the green kryptonite being destroyed. So I had assumed that this was after way, like after that story had completed. So yeah, so I, I think this is a pretty good story. This has been reprinted a couple of times. Uh, once, of course, in the Kryptonite Nevermore hardcover, which. Excuse me, just about all these, well, just about, actually, all of these Superman comics we're going to be reading up until about the end of the story uh, were reprinted in that, so you'll be hearing that for a little bit. And, of course, this was also reprinted in the Best of DC number 12, so which appears to be a really good book, because I've, well, this is like the second or third story we've had reprinted in that, so that should be pretty good. I'll have to check that out sometime. Boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to reach tall buildings in a single bound. This amazing stranger from the planet Krypton. The man of steel. The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a journey through the golden age of the Man of Steel in comics, radio, and film. Available at GreatCrypton.com Backup story for this issue is called The Doomsayer. It's a fabulous world of Krypton story. Uh, this one is called uh, The Doomsayer. So I guess I said that twice, sorry. Uh, the story is by Denny O'Neill, and the art is by Dick Giordano. And the art looks really good in this issue, by, or this story, by the way. 
Um, and of course the editor is Julie Schwartz and the Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And it starts off with Superman, Green, uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow and Black Canary having a picnic near uh, what appears to be uh, I don't know a power plant of some kind and apparently there there's wastewater from the plant is being poured into the river that they're having their picnic next to which of course because of this era uh, is setting Green Arrow off and uh, Black Canary is telling him that he's ranting again and she's actually tired of it because she thinks that mankind will be able to repair any harm that is done to the earth um, but of course pessimistic Ollie or Green Arrow uh, mentions that uh, they've been people have been warning about this for years and nothing's been done and Superman actually relates that Green Arrow could be right because a similar thing happened on Krypton and it's not a story he likes to tell but it's one he feels is appropriate for this uh, time so it begins many years ago on Krypton in a city called Surus which is on the southern continent, is on a southern continent. It's an odd city uh, for, because there's some flowers that grew there that were called the Cirrus Blossoms, and that's how the city got its name. And these blossoms actually played music, and apparently these were very enchant. It was a very enchanting music, and most of the people in the city literally just spent all their time sitting there listening to these flowers. However, there was a there was a scientist named Dr. Moday who um, realized, even at this point, that um, great tensions were building in the core of Krypton, which could cause an explosion that would destroy the planet. And that they've only got about 20, they have less than 20 years to fix the situation. And he plans to correct it by drilling a shaft below the planet's surface uh, to drain off the lava deposits. But in order to do that, he needs the help of the rest of the city. So he decides he's going to go out and make sure and tell everybody. However, while he's standing there trying to tell everybody what's happening, they're too busy listening to the flowers. And they don't want to hear anything about it. So uh, Moday gets kind of mad and grabs uh, his scythe and goes out to the meadow where these flowers grow. And basically starts destroying them, cuts them all off, cuts them all down. Uh, and until he's actually confronted by a crowd of the Ceruzans, I think that's how you say that, and they want to know what he's doing, and he's trying to say that he's trying to make them understand what's happening, so he's trying to do this because these aren't going to matter if the planet is destroyed. And they're mad at him because he's destroying their music. So... The crowd attacks him, and though he puts up a valiant fight, basically the crowd just pretty much takes him down. He's beaten. They don't show him being bloody, but you can imagine that if they showed this scene in a comic today, he would literally have broken body parts. I mean, he'd be really torn up in the work. This one image literally shows, uh, like... One, two, three, four, five, maybe six people pounding at this guy. And then afterwards, you see them kind of look shocked of what they've done. And they don't know what to do with him because it would be humane to kill him. You know, I guess beating him up is no, is okay. But killing him is 
wrong. So they take him to the greenhouse, which actually they put him in this empty in this empty area surrounded by thousands of these flowers. And he stands there and is forced to listen to their music. And unfortunately for Krypton, uh, all these flowers constantly playing their music actually kind of brainwashes Moday. And when they let him out, ask him if he has anything unpleasant to say, and all he wants to do is listen to the music. And 20 years later, the planet explodes. So as Superman tells, uh, Superman finishes the story by relating that Moday did die happy, uh, but 12 billion people died, including his parent, including Superman's parents, because no other scientist saw the danger until it was too late. And even though Jor-El did discover it, no one believed him. So it was a pretty grim tale, and it actually sets. A black canary off, and he she decides she's gonna go talk to the man who owns that factory. So she's pretty much ready to kick some butt. All right, so this is a short little story. I don't have really too many notes on it. In fact, I've only got a couple of literally a couple. Um, I love the art. Um, Dick Giordano is a great artist. I do see some of the stuff he did um, that was that's influenced by both Neil Adams, who he inks, he inked a lot during this period, but also uh, images that remind me some of um, like some of the stuff George Perez did in my recent reading rereading of Crisis on Infinite Earths, just some of the angles and poses. So that's kind of cool. I don't know if it's just be, if it's something maybe that got changed with the inks or what, but some of these poses, I don't. Maybe George Perez is actually more influenced than most people realize by dictator. I don't know. Anyway, um, another note is I find it interesting that the doctor, Mode, um, basically he has a crew cut, and he's the one that is quote-unquote the sane one in this story. Meanwhile, the people listening to the flowers, which I'm affectionately referring to as the flower children, all have kind of longer hair and these big sideburns. So basically what we've got is... This scientist that's a, that's basically part of the you know sanity or the establishment kind of thing portrayed, and then we have the flower hippie children who don't want to hear any of it, just want to be in peace. And I just thought I don't know if maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I think it's kind of interesting that they would do that. I don't know if it's a writer if it's the writer's idea, uh, the editor idea, or the artist's idea to do that. Or if it's even an unconscious plan, but uh, basically, other than a couple instances, the people that they indicate that they show listening to the flowers are mostly pretty young, and again, they have kind of that '70s, what you kind of see is the '70s hairdo. I'm not talking about like the guys have long down to you know past their shoulders hair. I'm talking just you know that they've let their hair grow out a little bit enough where you can style it in several different ways and the sideburns are like mutton chops and go down like below their ears and stuff and of course most of the guys have headbands because it's krypton but i i think i think that's pretty interesting and like i said at the end black canary is ready to kick some butt so apparently it affected her very greatly so that's pretty much it for that issue um and that's it for the Superman issue. So, um, play another promo or two.
and we'll come back with our final issue of the month. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the man. Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com. Next up, we have Action Comics number 399. This issue uh, was released on February 25th, 1971, and uh, with a cover date of 19 of April 71, with a 15 cent cover price. Another great image by Neil Adams, which sets up the main story pretty well. Um, basically what we've got on this cover is, well, like I said, it says up the cover, um, what we're learning is that there might be, it might have been three Supermen. Uh, we see the first one dead in a drawer. We see the sec, a second Superman labeled Superman 2 also dead in a drawer, but this one's got some chemicals floating around them. And then we see Superman 3, but that drawer open. And apparently we, uh, based on the word balloons, it looks like this one is reserved for our Superman, or the Superman we're currently following. So this should be an interesting, and it says, who were the mystery Superman? Why were the doom bells tolling? Superman, you're dead, dead, dead. Which just kind of psychic, psychic, psychedelic. So we start off this story as roving clerk, uh, reporter Clark Kent. Here's a news bulletin in his mobile TV news van. And, um, it's apparently about uh, at Lookout Mountain. There's a solar furnace that's out, gone out of control, and they fear catastrophe, so they're sending out an emergency bulletin to Superman. So quickly he parks the mobile news van and streaks off as Superman. Uh, flies out at super speed, and as he's getting there, the scientists are actually telling him that he needs to do something before it, uh, it ignites the atmosphere and turns Earth into a ball of flame which I kind of have problems with. But anyway, apparently this looks, uh, the design of this looks really cool. It looks like we have some solar, some like, almost looks like solar panels. They're reflecting the light towards what looks like a satellite dish, which is pointing all the light towards this small little building, which hasn't caught on fire yet, but uh, has smoke coming out of it. Superman tries to get in between the flame, the energy between the, what looks like a dish and the actual uh, solar furnace, but it's hitting him with the power of a thousand atomic bombs, and suddenly Superman is pulled out from some kind of force, uh, spinning him like a feather, and he blacks out. But when he comes to, he's inside what looks to be some kind of glass cage uh, with three gentlemen who you might have heard of before. Uh, we've got General Custer, George Washington, and Abraham Lincoln. And while that doesn't seem to make sense. Superman's about as stunned as we, the reader, would be. Uh, so he talks to them, but event, unfortunately, he uses his X-ray vision to see that Washington does have colonial money. Uh, Lincoln does have tickets to the Fourth Theater, and Custer is wearing his buckskins instead of his normal uniform, which, as history said, is what he did before his last stand. They, of course, don't believe that Superman is an alien from Krypton. They think he's just some kind of circus performer. Uh, 
So Superman tries to bust out, but doesn't do it at super speed, and fortunately he fails, which doesn't really help prove anything to his other captors. But he's able to use his x-ray vision enough to see outside, apparently, uh, and his super hearing, because while it doesn't say that, obviously he's using it if he's hearing what's going on outside. So apparently these four people have been pulled in, pulled to the future by a chrono, chrono selector and uh, to appear in person before this advanced history class. So this is all for school thing. And it's, they're inside of a refractive force shield, so they can't see them. Well, no, okay. So Superman and the others cannot see out, but the class can see in. Superman doesn't like the idea of putting put under a microscope and inside a force field, so he uses his X-ray vision, uh, which, while somewhat um, diminished by the force field, is still has enough to disrupt the generator circuits for powering the force field, and he's able to bust his way out using his super strength, and he attacks. He actually kind of attacks the teacher and wants to know what's going on. And he just says that he's brought him here with other great heroes because he's the last Superman of his era. Which, of course, doesn't make sense because there's only one Superman on Earth 1 anyway. So this gentleman, who actually is wearing a skirt and has long hair, but a receding headline, headline hairline. So he kind of looks like a weird-looking girl. Uh, relates the story of Superman. Uh, using a helmet that will allow him to will allow Superman to see everything he's explaining. So we see the explosion of Krypton and the rocket heading to Earth. We see him as he, we see Kal-El growing up as a child. Uh, the fact that his super strength kicks in and he can apparently swing a bull around, or is it a cow? No, it's a bull. They just have the horns colored in the same color as the rest of the bull. Uh, and then a Superboy carrying a safe, and is Superman stopping a train. Unfortunately, one tragic day, Superman was attacked by an energy vampire from space, which drained his powers, pretty much leaving him dying. He eventually uh, landed on Earth on a deserted beach, and he was found and taken to the National Research Institute. They studied him and found a way to transfuse his, him, his powers and re remains into a biocopy of the original Superman. In other words, they've made like a protoplasm copy of Superman. He flies off with all of his memories retained, uh, with all the memories of the first Superman, but without remembering that final battle with the energy vampire. Uh, so Superman 2 uh, does his thing for a while until he shows up at this uh, planet Rigor, which is a leper colony planet. And unfortunately, the he what he picks up from these guys... Uh, causes his protoplasm body to break down. So he's returned to the Research Institute, and this time they don't have Superman's actual body anymore uh, because that doesn't work, but they do have um, all the information they need on uh, some tape on their records. And um, they're able uh, to copy Superman's cytoplasmic structure down to his last cell as well as his brain, but apparently this is the last chance. This is the last time they can do it uh, because this time the artificial protoplasm is unstable, and if there's another super disaster, 
there will no longer be a Superman. So there you have it, and that's the story of Superman 3. And kind of note, it's kind of hard to say it without thinking about the movies, but it's like Superman 1's the original, and it's basically the original superhero movie. I like how that plays out. Superman 2's the, the second part. Some say it's the better one. Um, I don't know how much I agree with that, but um, this Superman seems to be just as good as the original. So that's until something happens at the end. Super kiss, anybody? Okay. So that's kind of that. And then this Superman 3, and we don't know what he's done, but he's un unstable, so he really can't do much, which Superman 3 was not the best Superman movie. There's a lot of things that went right with it, but it has also has a lot of problems. Kind of makes me think of that. But anyway, uh, back to the story. Uh, so Superman still doesn't believe that you know, he could possibly be the, uh, the third Superman because he doesn't remember any of this, which makes sense since apparently they erased that, those parts of his memory. So he does have final proof. So they take him to the crypt that was Superman's final resting place. And like on the cover, they open the drawer with Superman 1. They open the second drawer with Superman 2. Which, the difference is, unlike the covers where they look like they're in the same thing, it looks like Superman 1 is in some kind of plastic mold uh, around him to preserve him. Superman 2 is looks like he's in some kind of weird kind of cylinder bottle type thing uh, that's pumping some kind of I don't know what it is but some kind of compound into it in order to keep his I guess the protoplasm somewhat stable so it looks like Superman and of course the uh, the dot the and of course the teacher is about to open up the drawer for Superman 3, but Superman says he doesn't want to see it. Uh, but at least he's pointed out that he died a superhero, and they present him with the Medal of Valor that, that the third Superman won for what he did in his final feat. So Superman takes the award, and suddenly a VisiCast news bulletin appears. Oh, by the way, they're in the 24th century. I don't know if I mentioned that, but yeah. Anyway, uh, VisiCast News Bulletin shows up. Apparently, there was an archaeological expedition to seek a lost civilization under the Greenland ice cap. And unfortunately, there's been an ice quake, and the men are buried. Fifty men. So Superman races off, saves the men without any problems at all, and then also destroys more of the ice so they find the, civil the lost civilization. Superman returns to the, to the archaeological not archaeological, yeah, the history museum or whatever, and um, wants to know and wants to check one thing. So if this, if they caught, they must have pulled Superman in right before he actually died. So therefore, this is Lincoln before he's headed to the theater where he's going to die. Uh, this is Custer before his last stand, and this is Washington uh, before he's about to die of pneumonia. So the professor says, yes, they're, they've brought in each one at the end of their career. So Superman asks how he's supposed to die. And even though that this should cause some kind of irreparable harm to the time stream, because Superman now knows how he's going to die, and it's something that they play with later and say that they can't tell, because obviously you can't tell fact from fiction and all these other information, all these other reasons this guy just says well if you have to know apparently you died saving the earth from a catastrophic explosion caused by a new form of energy 
aka basically the uh, what's going what was the solar furnace which we saw at the beginning of the issue. Uh, but suddenly an alarm goes off, and the professor tells Superman they he's got to get back inside the force field. They've got to return all these guys back to their proper places so they can die, so they don't cause pro uh, harm to the time stream. And Superman, in a complete out-of-character moment, says, nope, I'm staying here. I don't want to go back and die. Uh, so the guy says, uh, you've got to. Um, uh, like uh, your career is over like those other heroes. Washington has freed the slaves. Lincoln was elected president for life and Custer is chief of the Indian Federation. Which, of course, Superman points out, um, no, none of that happened. I don't know what you're talking about. A second and final warning goes off and Superman tries to stay the course. He's literally standing there, stubborn as a mule, arms folded, chin up, saying that he's not moving. Unfortunately, things start to fall apart around him because of the fact that he's not going back in time, therefore it's messing up the time stream. And things are going to fall apart, so Superman realizes, so instead of him dying, that's countless people, uh, not just the ones that are alive there in the 24th century, but everyone before them and after them are going to die because Superman's changing history, a history that has to take place. So Superman goes back to the force field as fast as he can. The, uh, the professor activates the retro circuit, and all of these heroes that we talked about are sent back to the places where they were taken from. Superman finds himself uh, de again dealing with the solar furnace, and he knows there's only one thing he can do. He picks up the furnace and flies it out into space, leaving behind a long trail of flame that apparently reaches all the way from space all the way back down to, I guess, near Metropolis, and uh, we don't see what he does with it. I'm guessing he throws it at the sun, uh, but no, he just, they, next issue, the next page, we just see him standing on top of a rock on Earth, which confuses Superman because he didn't die, and he was told he was supposed to. I mean, the 24th century had it proven. So as he looks at the medal that he had received, he looks at it and realizes that it's made of a medical of a no metal like that appears on Earth, and that, combined with the twisted history that that professor was uh, spouting off, leads Superman to believe that he was actually on a parallel world, Earth. I don't know what number or letter, but uh, apparently he was on a parallel Earth where things were similar but not exactly the same. And on that Earth, super, there were other Supermen, but somehow that experimental chrono selector uh, somehow instead of actually pulling the Superman 3 from that from that earth actually crossed the dimensions and pulled the Superman from well earth 1 so super uh, so Superman switches back to Clark wondering if that Washington and the others were from his earth or from the alternate Earth, but he'll never know. All he knows is that it's good to be alive and well in his era on his Earth. And meanwhile, on another corner of time and space, Superman 3 lies dead, a hero enshrined forever. Now, as I feel I must do on most stories written by Leo Dorfman, I have a few issues. First of all, I want to mention that this issue was reprinted in both Superman 30s to the 70s and Superman 30s to the 80s, as well as Best of DC number 12. Okay, to start off, we have a solar furnace. 
Now, first of all, you would think that before they would, anyone would be allowed to do any kind of work, even with an experimental solar furnace, they would have some kind of redundancy systems or security safety devices in place so that if, some, if what happens is, so if it goes out of control like this, there'd be some way to turn it off without, you know, having to call Superman. And also, even if they do, they're yelling at Superman. Now, I know some people feel like they have to tell Superman, but I would think that as soon as he shows up, he knows what needs to be done. He can see the giant flames coming out of the building. You don't need to shout and tell him what to do. It's Superman. He's pretty smart. And I take issue with that. But anyway, uh, on page 7, uh, we see is where we see the first part of the fact of what they're doing to Superman uh, to recreate him after he's died. Now, I don't know about you, but personally to me, um, this sounds a lot like what Cadmus does to create Superboy during the whole death of Superman story from the 90s about 20 years after this. I don't, I'm wondering maybe if this had some kind of influence or maybe a thought in the back of their mind. Um, when it's, well, at least for Carl Kiesel, since he was the one that came up with it. But I, I, I just thought it was kind of interesting how that works out. I mean, Superman dies. The world needs Superman, so they're going to create a second one. The difference, of course, being that, one, they weren't trying to put him under anyone's control, and two, uh, they were actually able, basically, to clone Superman successfully without any changes to the powers, and three, he was actually able to be Superman instead of being a Superboy. But other than that, I mean, it's basically the same. Um, 11 and 12, which is where he's really acting out of character, he's really acting immature. By this point, it's 1971. Even if we're going by comic, uh, if basically, okay, I have a big issue with this, and I can't put my words out. Um, roughly, Superman has been able to time travel for maybe 20 years or so, real time, by now. In his life, say Superman is 29 or 30, because that's basically where he's supposed to be, roughly eternally 29. So he's been Superboy since he was about eight. So we're looking at 20 or so years of being a superhero. In those, in that time, we know that he's gone to the past and tried to prevent Abraham Lincoln from being killed. Couldn't do it. Uh, we know that as both Superboy and Superman, he has learned that you can't change time. We also know that if you try to, it could cause all kinds of problems, even though basically you can't. And this is another problem. I don't know. This is, this is something that Mary, Mary, maybe Murray Boltonoff didn't know about. But there was rules established in the DCU. I don't know how well they were followed by anybody. But I know there were at least rules for the Superman characters, like Superman and Supergirl. You cannot change the past, no matter what you do. If you exist, if you go back to a time where you already exist and try to change something, you're pretty much a phantom and you can't do anything. If you go back to before then to do something like save Abraham Lincoln, something is going to get in your way, such as I don't know, Lex Luthor exposing Superboy to red kryptonite, paralyzing him so he can't move until after Lincoln's been killed. So he should know right here 
that he needs to get back before he causes any problems. The fact that he's acting like a stubborn mule is way out of character for the, for the uh, for Superman. Way out of character. I'd be interested in hearing if anyone else uh, disagrees with me, but personally, from what I know of Superman, from what I've read of Superman, both Bronze Age, Silver Age, both, listen to me, uh, from Golden Age, Bronze Age, Silver Age, uh, Modern Age, Burn Era, Later, um, you know, even the current stuff where he's acting a little, I mean, where he's not the Superman that exactly the same as what we've been used to over the years. Still, he would not just stand there and act like a little four-year-old and say, mm -mm, I'm not moving. Um, also, page 12. Okay, Superman's standing there, acting like a stubborn mule, not wanting to go back. Yet everything's falling apart, like time's being affected. Okay, that makes sense. If you think that Superman, that, that this is the Superman from their time and not ours. But they have grabbed the wrong Superman. So it shouldn't be causing a problem with them. Now, maybe that's our answer that as to the other heroes, the uh, Washington, Lincoln, and Custer. Maybe it is because they were still there. But Superman being there should not have been causing that problem because, obviously, it's the different Superman from a different Earth. Their Superman 3 is actually, excuse me, is actually where he was supposed to be. And I don't know how much of it is because of the experimental part of it. But maybe they were subtly hinting at the fact that since Superman 3's dead body is at that museum, they wouldn't have been able to pull him out of the past because no two, I mean, you can't appear in the same place twice. Now, granted, he's not alive, but you can't be in the same place twice. No matter what, so Superman, if they had gotten the right Superman, he technically would have been uh, immaterial going by the comic book science here. So maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's a subtle thing. I think I'm giving him too much credit. Uh, overall, though, this was an entertaining Superman story other than these gripes. Maybe if Superman had hurried up and got in there, there wouldn't have been as much drama, obviously, but there wouldn't have been Superman acting like a jerk either. Also, I, no I noticed that the art in this story was a lot better than some of the art that was in the Superman issue from this month. I don't know if they did it and had more time or what, but I just found the art to be a lot crisper, clearer, and less of an Anderson influence and more Swan-ish um, in this story. So I like the art in this better. So maybe that helps it. Anyway, and um, I'm going to go ahead and play one more promo, and then we'll get to the last story of this month. While attending a demonstration in radiology, student Peter Parker was bitten by a spider which had accidentally been exposed to radioactive rays. Through a miracle of science, Peter soon found that he had gained the arachnid's powers and had, in effect, become a human spider. Stan Lee presents... Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web, any size, catches seeds, just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. 
Welcome to Amazing Spider-Man Classics, where every month I and some friends will be discussing every book, every guest appearance, and every cameo we can find of our favorite web slinger, The Amazing Spider-Man. Are you tired of arguing over whether Ben Riley should have taken over the webs? Do you grow weary of the brand new day with all its controversy? Then return with us to the early days. Return with us to the classics. Amazing Spider-Man Classics at Amazing Spider-Man. Dot Libsyn dot com. Life is a great big hang up. Wherever there's a hang up, you'll find the Spider Man. And welcome back. And next up, we have the backup story from Action Comics 399, which is Super Baby's Lost World, which is an untold story from Superman's childhood. Uh, the writer on this is Jeff Brown. The art was by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. Again, the editor was Murray Boltonoff. And Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Jim Schuster. So we start off and we see uh, Super Baby. Uh, yeah, Super Baby, Jonathan, and Martha Kent. Uh, what's standing in what looks to be a jungle, or in what looks to be a jungle, about to be attacked by what appears to be either a Tyrannosaurus or an Allosaurus. Whichever uh, one of one of those, you know, it's a dinosaur, the meat eater kind that stood up and had the little arms. Uh, Clark flies up to punch it, and we learn that it's actually a robot because we're at an amusement park on a ride about prehistoric time. Clark thought he was saving the day, and turns out he just damaged some ride equipment. So they get him. Uh, so the kids get him to come back to the car. They finish the ride. And they go out to get ice cream because the thing you're going to do when you've had a kid that's acted up and done the wrong thing and destroyed a, a big piece of apartment of amusement park equipment is get them two scoops of ice cream. Anyway, uh, meanwhile, in another part of the park, we see two gangsters arrive. And um, I hate to tell you this, but this is Connie and Hyde can't make that up. So we've got Connie and Hyde, uh, a duo, obviously, man and woman, and uh, they've stolen some a million dollar haul. They have it hidden in a picnic basket and are trying to run from the police. However, um, the police show up at the amusement park and, decide, and start checking around. So uh, Hyde uh, lives up to his name and hides the loot inside of a trash can. While they're standing in line, while the kids are all standing in line getting their ice cream, Clark sees him put the money in there, or, or not the money, it's jewels inside that picnic basket. Uh, uses his X-ray vision to see what he put in there and realizes, uh-oh, he left his stuff in that trash can. So he runs over and wants to be a good boy and show the kids that he can be good. So he runs over real quick to that can, rips open the side of it pulls out the basket and returns it to hide for him because, you know, he's a good boy. Um, and, of course, the, they thank the kid because that's nice. Uh, and they say, uh, we're in, uh, look, you need to go get your parents and leave us alone. But by that point, uh, Clark doesn't know where he is and doesn't see them anymore. Even though he could use his vision powers, but he's a kid, little kid, so we don't know. Anyway, he starts crying and... Connie and Hyde uh, are where actually Hyde is worried that his crying is going to call the cops, but Connie realizes that 
but this could be a good thing because the police are looking for a couple and if they take that kid along they look like a family of three meanwhile the Kents have realized Clark's missing and Martha gets a little worried but Jonathan says don't worry he's super so nothing's gonna hurt him which is it you know correct um, so uh, they help uh, so the gangsters help Clark and tell them they're going to take him on a part of the boat, a part of the ride to see if they can figure out where his parents are. So they go to the Jungle Land boat trip. And this is uh, like you see, like the Jungle Cruise, I believe, at Disney World, where you get a boat, you're riding through the quote unquote jungle. And then, you, of course, you see the animals like the hippopotamus, alligator, and of course, they're animatronic, they're not real, uh, all moving around and floating around in the water. You know, to get the idea that you're actually in the jungle. So they're floating along, and the hi uh, a hippo picks its head up out of the water, and actually scares the girl because she wasn't expecting it for some reason. And so Clark is like, "Don't worry, uh, mommy. Say all the animals in the park be like toys, because you know, since he destroyed the first one, it's like wind-up toy. So he literally just picks up the whole animatronic." And we see that it's just a hippo head on some of the body attached to some mechanical stuff. And unfortunately, him picking it up causes the boat to sink. And so Clark, and, and I mean sink, apparently this thing is like a bottomless pit of a little moat. Weird. Uh, so Clark flies under it and then picks it up out of the water and flies them off to the side and dumps them out of the water. But now they're all wet, so he needs to have some way to clean them off, and he sees the fake volcano that's on the other side of the park. So Clark picks them up and flies them across the park uh, pretty quickly to take them over there to dry them off like the fireplace at home does with their clothes. Unfortunately, it backfires, and the smoke actually causes them to have trouble breathing, so Clark decides he's going to blow it out. Which he does. Unfortunately, he doesn't have the control that he'll have when he grows up. And him blowing out the fire causes them, the gangsters to be blown off the fake volcano. And they land in a, in, a, in a tree where the cops find them and the jewelry from their heist. And um, we said we better be careful because they might try to get away. But Hyde hugs the one cop's leg and says, please take us away from that kid. And they tried to explain this quote-unquote super demon who could fly and had super breath and had the strength of an armored tank. And, of course, the cops don't believe him, so they're going to take him to the psychiatric ward. But while they're complaining about the kid to the cops, uh, Martha and Jonathan hear about him, so they head over towards the volcano where Clark has been wrestling with an animatronic monkey. So they take Clark and they decide to leave. And as they're leaving, they ha just happen to walk by the police van or police truck or whatever it is uh, with the gangsters in it. They don't look too happy about the fact that they've been arrested. And at the end, uh, we see the Kents with Clark in his crib. And he says that big wind-up animal toys were lots of fun, but he loves his little teddy bear the best. And that's the end. Oh, boy. Okay, first of all. I don't have a whole lot of notes. It's only a seven-page story, but uh, the time on this story is a little iffy. Now, I don't know if they had decided on this yet, but I'm pretty sure they had. 
The idea, of course, is that Superboy and Super Baby stories are supposed to take place roughly 15 to 20, maybe even more, almost 30 years before the current stuff happening at Superman. So if this is 1971, Superboy Super apparently made his debut when he was eight. So if he's, if go with the fact that at some point they decide that he's 29 eternally as an adult. Never actually hits 30, he's just 29. No matter how Kurtz Von draws him, he's 29. So if he's 29 here in 1971, we go back till he's 8, that's 21 years. And it's 71, so it should be 50 when he becomes Superboy for the first time. And therefore it should be the late 40s when this story takes place. Now, I'm not going to go into the fact whether or not this stuff could, this amusement park could exist back then. I don't know. I was not alive in the 40s. So I have no idea. But, um, everyone's outfits look a little too modern. Uh, Ma's outfit looks pretty, I mean, I'm not talking about like, well, for the most part, I'm not talking about 71, but we're looking at the late 40s here, okay? This uh, Connie person looks pretty mod for what should be the late 40s. Now, Hyde, actually, that could work. He's got a striped suit on, a bow tie, and a hat. But she looks very mod. I mean, her skirt's above her knee, um, and it's rather tight on her. And the way her hair is done, she's got a hairband. I mean, she literally looks like maybe the 60s. Um, and then, of course, now, I'm not having a problem. I don't have a problem with this. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to be start up anything. But in 1949, 48, 47, whenever this takes place, on page three, we see two black people in the amusement park. And I'm sorry, but at the time, I highly doubt they would have even been allowed in the amusement park. And if they had, it would probably be a different part of the park and not here with the white people. It's just historical type of fact, unfortunately. Things have changed since then, but unfortunately that's just the way it is. But beyond them, a lot of the other background characters also have more modern uh, outfits. Uh, from what I've read and seen, the big thing... Now, they do have it right where all the guys have fedoras on, except for, of course, Paul. But for the most part, guys had really short hair, and they used gel, uh, like gel and wax and whatever to you know keep it combed really nice and short. And women hairstyles were way different. But these people, uh, the guys have long hair, the women have long hair, uh, and hairstyles that you did not see in the late 40s. Uh, it's just the time, but it's pretty vague and kind of messed up. Um, so there is that. Uh, second, again, uh, like I mentioned just a minute ago, that, that I mean, jungle ride is pretty deep. I mean... I've been on the Jungle Cruise several times, and maybe if Scott Gardner's listening, he can probably he could probably help us figure this out because he works at Disney World. The lucky dog. Um, okay, these things should be the the water is not this deep. Uh, usually, these things are on have some there's some kind of devices in the water to make sure the boats keep going and stay on a track. Now, 
Now, I, I believe the Jungle Cruise, the boat literally floats, but, you know, the water, they, they have special stuff in the water to keep it moving so that the boat stays on the current course, it's a correct course without hitting the land or anything like that, um, because it's not that kind of ride. Also, it would not be that deep. You should be able to literally stand up in this water. But these guys are not only... Okay, these guys... Okay, the boat sinks. They're in the water. You don't see the bottom on this image. The boat's underwater. They are underwater completely. And there's quite a bit of space, maybe a foot, between them and the top of the water. Maybe even more. And, I don't know, that's... No. I'm sorry. I don't care if it's the 40s or today. There's not the. It's not going to be that deep. Um, however, there is one fun part on page six, panel two, where little Clark is going to blow out the uh, fire from the volcano. He's got this look on his face like he's really trying his hardest. He's got a frown. He goes from a kind of happy looking face to this frown. His cheeks are puffed like he's really focusing and serious about this. And actually, he looks a little bit like Gabby, like the way uh, Jack Kirby draws Gabby on the uh, Jimmy Olsen book from the Newsboy Legion. But uh, it's pretty interesting. And um, I thought so. I thought that was kind of cute. Um, Jonathan in this whole story. Now, I've read a lot of stuff, even Kurt, the way Kurt Swan draws it. And I know they, he's young. He's supposed to be younger here. But Jonathan Kent is always drawn with a receding hairline, somewhat. Uh, it kind of changes when they, in the story that will come up later, uh, but there's a story later on in the 70s in Superboy where Jonathan and Martha are turned younger and they stay that way for the rest of the, excuse me, for the rest of the Bronze Age. But even then, he's got a receding hairline. Not so much when he's first drawn, but by the time we get to the 80s and the new adventures of Superman and Kurt Schaffenberg is drawing it, it's a receding hairline. Uh, pa Kent has always had a receding hairline. Here, he pretty much looks like a slightly older, or slightly older, an old Clark Kent. He's got enough hair to have it combed over to the side. And look, the way it's combed over, it looks like it could easily fall down into a curl on his head. Uh, the difference, no, it, and it's combed the right way. Um, basically, he, he just looks like, it's like what Clark Kent would look like, you know, when he gets older so that it's a little different I'm not complaining about it I'm just saying it's a little different uh, like I said this looks like an old Clark um, what happened what I want to know um, we get through this whole story Clark never really gets in trouble for all the damage it causes think about this he's destroyed the dinosaur he's destroyed the hippo from the jungle ride destroyed a trash can not taken a boat out of the water blew out and possibly damaged the volcano since we don't see it actually operating anymore after that and then destroys a animatronic monkey at the end so that's at least six instances after he destroys the dino the kids are going to get him ice cream basically i'm pretty sure that if i had done that granted i don't know for sure because i don't have superpowers at least i did when i was little that if that had happened to me we probably would have been leaving the park uh, right then and there, no matter how much it would have cost, um, we would have been leaving the park. I would have been in a lot of trouble right then. 
I wouldn't have been still in the park. My parents wouldn't have gotten me ice cream. And I'm not saying anything, trying to say anything mean about my parents, but that's just the realistic nature of this. Um, but nothing happens to Clark. They get him ice cream. All this other stuff, they're just happy to find him. They take him home, and he gets to go to bed without any repercussions from this day. I don't know. I'm sorry. I just, I don't know if it's just, if it's Leo Dorfman's writing, because he's also Jeff Brown, as we've established every episode since I found out, and uh, or Murray Boltonoff editing, but the, some of these action comics just have a lot of problems with them, more so than the Superman ones, and this is the kind of stuff I'm having problems with. I don't, I don't know. It just doesn't make sense to me. I don't want to be so negative on this, but things get better. Trust me. Things get a lot better. However, I will point out that actually this story read a lot like one of those uh, Kent family album stories that they used to show at the end of uh, one of those episodes of the Ruby Spears Superman show from 1988. It did read a lot like that, where other than the fact that Clark's got a super outfit, a cape and stuff, uh, picture it in, a, in brown shorts, brown shoes, and a button-up shirt that's basically... He basically got one of those. The kids know. I mean, he's got his power. He's got powers when he's a kid. No one knows about him, and he does all this stuff. That's basically one of those stories right there. So I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, beyond that, that's it. Um, we only had two issues to cover this week uh, because World's Finest did not come out this month. It will be back next month. Don't you worry. Um, I would like to point out this issue does have a letter by a certain Martin Pascoe from Clifton, New Jersey, who I'm pretty sure is the Marty Pascoe that, that by the end of the decade is writing the Superman books. Well, Superman. So I, that's kind of cool if you ask me. But literally, at this point, he's just a letter hack, and he's writing them in. And in fact, I think I forgot to mention it last week, but I think he wrote in on one of the issues last week. I don't remember if it was World's Finest. but uh, So it's kind of cool to see him uh, writing in and actually have a, you know, play a part at this early juncture. Uh, basically, oh, <laughs> and apparently he's pointing out the fact that um, he has a reputation as a letter column monopolizer. Because apparently he's getting a reputation of that. Um, so he's written, he writes a poem, which probably uh, 20 years later would have won him a Baldy Award. But uh, for now, he just gets his letter printed without any commentary afterwards. So that's pretty cool. Anyway, we have Martin Pascoe's letter. And yeah, that's it for the actual comics. Uh, of course, we do need to go over to Elsewhere in the DC Universe, or uh, Multiverse at this point, sorry. Over at Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics at DCIndexes.com, and we're looking at the all the other issues that came out in February of 1971. Uh, we do have Forever People number two, with another cool Jack Kirby cover, which uh, introduces a character named Mantis. Apparently, we have House of Secrets number 91, Death by the Eagle's Talon. Uh, we have Our Army at War featuring Sergeant Rock um, with the story of My Brother's Keeper with a Kubert cover. We have Swing with Scooter, which is another 64-page story for 25 cents involving a story uh, with David Cassidy and the girls he loves. 
So, yeah. That's number 34. There's Falling in Love, number 122, with a story, I want to be free to love. Um, oh, and this says, uh, your stars tell you how to be beautiful. So, if you want to know, it's in Falling in Love, number 122. Uh, there's an awesome-looking Neil Adams cover on All-Star Western, number 5, which presents Outlaw in The Hangman Never Loses. We have Binky, number 78, which is another 64 uh page book for 60 or for 25 cents and this one uh since you know that other book had david cassidy this one has barry williams which of course is great brady from the brady bunch saying what he wants most out of life and so he appears on the cover and yeah, we have the flash which appears to be a reprint considering it's a special at 25 cents this one features not uh, this one is another is a Dick Giordano cover uh, with Barry Allen Flash looking really cool. Uh, we've got um, we've got a story involving the Flash versus the Reverse Flash. We have the Golden Age Flash taking a journey into danger. We have Kid Flash in a race to Thunder Hill. And according if the image on the cover has any indication, this is when he was still sporting uh, the outfit that basically makes him look like Flash Jr as opposed to his uh, the Kid Flash costume that we do know about that becomes more famous later on. And then there's also one, uh, Johnny Quick meets too many Speed Kings. So that's pretty cool. It's a 64-page book for 25 cents. Uh, and then the next one, we have G.I. Combat, number 120, or 147, featuring Jeb Stewart and the Haunted Tank. Uh, this is another... Um, 25 cents uh, book with 64 page stories uh, with a 64 page story uh, any of this new uh, looks like at least the first story with the rebel tank is new uh, is any is all of it new? doesn't say on the cover uh, no not all of them uh, we have girls in love number 158 oh. and uh, where you have a test in here to test yourself what kind of date are you mm-hmm we have a Lois Lane story. Uh, let's see. And this one is I'll Never Fall in Love Again. And apparently this is Lois telling Superman that he's never go she's never going to love him again. And we see her in a really weird looking outfit throwing all kinds of stuff at Superman. It uh, looks like a book, uh, a statue, and a picture at least. Uh, another cool issue, uh, issue cover by Dick Giordano. It's really awesome looking. There's Young Romance, number 171. And boy, if this part on this one doesn't look like something from Cosmo, it literally says, Diet Magic, lose five pounds in five days. The do's and don'ts of dating. And other thrilling stories and features. So, yeah, apparently Cosmo used to be a comic book kind of thing. Uh, the cover is credited to Don Heck, but this looks more like a Dick Giordano. Maybe he inked it? Uh, but that's some awesome looking Don Heck art that I've never noticed before. Uh, Sugar and Spike number 95 is a regular size issue this time with four Sugar and Spike stories. And they have some kind of feature in this issue to write your own comics page. So, interesting. Uh, we have Unexpected, number 124, and this has a cool cover. This is one of those scary stories with the gift from of the ghouls, which is the second story in the issue. We have an issue of Brave and the Bold, number 95, with 
Batman and a surprise guest star. So you're not supposed to know who it is. Uh, I know because I'm reading right here who it is, but I'm not going to tell you because, again, that would be cheating. However, I can tell you that uh, this was written by Bob Haney. And, of course, as a lot of Bob Haney stories seem to do, it has a really pro real good problem with continuity. And, in fact, there's actually a comment on the issue on the website that mentions the fact that there's some kind of continuity error here. Uh, next, we have Secret Hearts number 151. Uh, we have Superboy number 173 with a really cool-looking Neil Adams cover. And this one... Uh, the cover, we actually see a Superman, Superboy statue being destroyed by Super Clark. And I guess to kind of do a uh, Spider-Man-ish type outfit, Clark, um, it's Clark, looks like Clark with his glasses. Uh, and he's wearing what looks to be loafers without any socks. Uh, some green and black striped boxers. A purple shirt with a pentagon symbol on his chest with CK written in it, and he's wearing a green cape. But this shirt is like a, not really a wife beater, but it's a sleeveless shirt. This costume looks all kinds of hooky. I don't know who draws the story, but apparently it is Bob Brown. Uh, if it's any, if Neil Adams can't make it look good, it can't be good. I, it's got to be a weird costume. But with the purple and green, I almost wonder if Lex has something to do with it. I don't know. I could be wrong. I've never read the story. And I don't know if he's even in the story. I'm not going to look because I don't want to tell anybody and I don't want to lie. So anyway, uh, Witching Hour, number 14. Uh, another cool, very moody Neil Adams cover. Uh, featuring the Haunted House from Space. We have Super Size from Beyond the Unknown, number 10, which is another one of those... 25 cent 64 page stories with a Murphy Anderson cover featuring the fishmen of earth and that story is reprints so I'm guessing they're all reprints but they're 64 pages to stagger the imagination heartthrobs number 131 um, with looks like a, the woman on the cover has to choose between a doctor and Freddy from Scooby-Doo and uh, this one uh, Lynn Farrell I don't know who that is, uh, reveals how to be popular. So, yeah. Uh, we have issue two of The New Gods, although on the cover it's Orion of The New Gods. Uh, and on this cover we see that the sinister warlords of Apocalypse strike at Earth. And the title is Oh Deadly Dark Side, which I, I know, I'm, well, I'm pretty sure, actually does get re uh, reused a couple other places. It, and it, I want to say Superman 3 from 87. I might be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure that's where they use it. And on the cover, we do see Dark, the head of Darkseid, which looks really awesome. Uh, Desaad, and I'm not sure who the other character is, but we also see, looks like Orion's had better days and has smoke coming from him or lightning or I don't know. We also see the dreaded Fear Machine. Uh, then we have Star Spangled War Stories, number 156. And I don't know who it is, but it features the unknown soldier. And he says he's going to play, portray the most dangerous role ever. And we see that he's got all this wall covered in face masks. And a couple of them look fam somewhat familiar. I do see one that looks like uh, Fra uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, but the one he's talking about, he's actually picking up a mask that would make him appear to be Adolf Hitler. 
so I can see why that is. This also features a enemy ace story. So if you like those, make sure you check this one out. Uh, next up we have Jimmy Olsen number 137, which uh, has Superman facing the four-armed terror. And if you want to know more about that, make sure you go to the pre classic pre-crisis reviews over at the supermanhomepage.com, uh, where this weird guy named Charlie um, reviews the issue and tells you all you need to know about that one. Adventure Comics number 405 has Supergirl. We have Detective Comics number 410, which has the um, uh, one of the famous uh, Batman stories from this era that actually so, uh, sort of uh, gets redone for the Batman in, uh, the animated series, uh, featuring A Vow from the Grave, which is basically the episode where uh, Batman follows a, con a convicted felon into a camp of circus freaks. You know, the fat lady, uh, the kid that looks like a, that has flippers for arms and legs, so he looks like a seal. Um, and on the cart, now the animated series, uh, the person he's chasing, uh, that person Batman chases in there is Killer Croc. But in 1971, Killer Croc hadn't been introduced to the Batman mythos yet. So this is just uh, a guy that we don't know. That, well, he, we know his name, but I can't remember off the top of my head. But that's the, the famous story in here, and I know that's where Mary printed a few times. So that one shouldn't be hard to find. Uh, we have Girls Romances number 156. Um, and this also, in addition to the three stories that, it, that are told in here, uh, I also have What Your Dreams Mean to Your Love Life. So, yeah. Uh, it's got a great looking Dick Giordano cover though, so I highly recommend that. Uh, and then, of course, we have the all new, all now, Green Lantern co starring Green Arrow, number 183, or no, just number 83. And um, featuring a story called And a Child Shall Destroy Them. Now, I don't know who it is, but it almost looks like Richard Nixon is trying to get someone to destroy uh, Green Lantern and Green Arrow. It's a lot like Richard Nixon. Anyway, that's drawn by Neil Adams. And that's it for this month. So, um, again, make sure if you want to be on the show, uh, just email me at umbc81 at gmail.com. And um, please make sure you check out the other uh, podcast and the video cast over at Superman Podcast Network at www.fortressofdailytooth.com slash Superman Podcast Network. And if I might make a new recommendation for you, in addition to the ones I've mentioned before uh, with the Golden Age the two Golden Age podcasts, um, uh, Crisis to Crisis, the video cast, the audio dramas, uh, Superman fan podcast, Superman Forever. Um, I believe it's been added to the site, but make sure you check out um, World's Best uh, Podcast. Um, not only uh, that, that's one of those podcasts, it doesn't particularly cover the comics that much. Uh, mostly it covers Smallville. Uh, but I've been listening to the last few episodes, and I, I've, I've actually been really enjoying it. Uh, they've got the guy that runs the Superboy homepage, uh, Sam Rizzo, on there as a frequent guest host. Um, and they've also got Barry Freeman from Freeman. Barry, I'm sorry if I've said your name wrong. Uh, he says it one of those two ways. And um, he's from he's actually from the Superman homepage. So, you know, he's a real good expert on the world of Superman. So I highly recommend you check that out, too. And, uh, of course, my show. Uh, please make sure you check out my show. Uh, you can also see 
back episode or listen to back episodes of my show there uh, going back a couple months and then uh, if you want to see the rest of them you can either subscribe to the show with via iTunes or at Superman podcast no 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 that's not right uh, or at Superman in the Bronze Age blogspot.com so thank you for listening you all have a great day and God bless thank you for listening to Superman in the Bronze Age hosted by Charlie Niemeyer you can write to the show at umbc81 at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show two ways, via the RSS feed at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com or via iTunes. Also, if you like this show, make sure you check out the blogs and podcasts listed in the recommended sites section, and be sure to check out my reviews of other classic Superman comics at www.supermanhomepage.com. Superman and all related characters are copyright DC Comics. Also, any images or music used for this blog or podcast is purely for entertainment only. I do not make any money from this show. Thank you again for listening, and God bless.